<laughs> Around our house, we call that the plebney. When you go to say something and something else completely different comes out. <laughs> to say that I am thrilled to be here this morning would be an understatement. And I'm only half as thrilled to be here as I am to see all of you here. He has risen. He has risen. He has risen. I thought the first time might have been a fluke. This morning, we have the fabulous opportunity to explore Resurrection Sunday. If you've come this morning to hear what would be called the traditional Easter message from the same passages that we always use, and I'm certainly not short-selling them by any stretch of the imagination, you may find yourself wondering where I'm going. I have long been intrigued by how God has navigated the world, has led it, has set courses and seasons, how he has determined times and dates. Think about your own life. How many things happened in your life that you would jokingly and maybe not even seriously say, well, it just kind of happened that way. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's the, the oncoming of your children and grandchildren. But I don't believe that things happen just by happenstance. I believe that God superintends everything that happens in our world especially in the lives of his children. This morning, we're going to go to the book of Galatians, chapter 4. And I realize that this passage that I'm going to use this morning is normally held for Christmas. It is one of my favorite Christmas passages, although some would say that I'm fishing awful hard. But the Apostle Paul writes in verse 4 of chapter 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let's pray. Father God, I'm terribly aware of the sin in my life. And I know, frankly, I'm not the only one in this room. I would ask this morning for myself that you would allow me to be your vessel this day. Open up those things that you have put in me. Allow me to be used in a way that is totally unworthy of the man that I am. Lord, for those that are here this morning and those that will be seeing this electronically, I would pray that you would convict, that you would comfort, and that you would encourage as we celebrate the greatest day in all of human history, the resurrection of your Son. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
I realize that this passage is normally equated for Christmas, but I think it would be biblically incorrect and inconsistent to not use this passage to begin us down the path towards the crucifixion. God has just, had, just as God had prepared the world for the incarnation, he prepared the world for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. After all, either God is fully sovereign, meaning that he has complete and total control over everything that happens on the face of the earth at all times, everywhere, or he's not God at all. We serve a God that is absolutely sovereign. Kingdoms will come and go. Countries will rise and fall. Kings will live and die. Presidents will come and go. Occasions, crises, cultures will rise and fall. But at the head of all of them, God stands sovereign, ruling over his planet. It may not feel like it right now. As a matter of fact, the most discouraging hour and a half of the day is any time the news is on. But remember, God is in the process of judging fallen man and sin. With his closed hand, God is making decisions and made them in the past that will glorify him in the long run. We may not see it. It's kind of like raising children. Sometimes you wonder, Lord, what are you doing? And further, what are they doing? But God has a plan. God allowed the world to prepare for the coming of Christ with the Roman roads, which allowed for the travel of the Roman soldiers and the, the spread of the gospel. He had, uh, there was this thing called the Pax Romano, the Peace of Rome. They, um, you could travel anywhere inside the Roman kingdom with peace without any fear of being attacked or relative peace. They, um, they had a common language, which... Have, how many of you have ever traveled out of the country and went someplace where you don't speak the language? I remember when we flew to Haiti, that was my first out-of-the-country experience. It was almost like an out-of-the-body experience, too. Um, I remember them, the stewardess, or the, pardon me, the flight attendant, telling us what was going to happen. And English was the last language she used. And we got there and I realized, I don't speak Haitian or Creole, then we went to Estonia, and I realized I don't speak Estonian either. But a common language is what God allows people to share the story of their lives, and in this case, the spreading of the gospel. You could communicate with each other over great distances because you shared the same language. I want you to realize that none of this happened instantaneously. None of this happened the instant Christ was born. God had planned this. He had set this into motion. He set everything in place for the incarnation of his son. He also began the clear march to the cross. He began that march clear back in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden in verse, chapter 3, verse 15. I'm going to read it for you because it's important that we know just how far back the promise of our salvation goes. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Some of the translations insert the word crush. God began this process, his timing, clear back at the fall of man. God has always had a plan to redeem 
mankind. The cross of Calvary has always loomed large. It's always been on the horizon. At that moment, it was always God saw it clear out in the, in the, in the further years away from the garden. He knew what was going to happen. He was tailoring everything that happened to go that way. The kings, the kingdoms, the judges, the giving of the law, the Babylonian captivity, all those things that happened to get there. God orchestrated all of that down the freeway of time to get us to the point where Galatians 4 can be said, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Not a random event. But I want you to realize that in all of this, God never once, never once excused sin. He made no excuses for sin. So we begin our march to the empty tomb. Let me read for you once again our passage this morning so you keep it in your mind. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Before Jesus walked this earth, God put all those things into place. From the bloodbath shortly after his birth, to the time in Egypt, to the interactions with the religious world, God planned and executed everything that would happen up to the crucifixion. I want you to consider some of the events in Christ's life. Uh, I'm a big fan of the narratives in the Gospels, especially the interactions of Jesus with common people. I want you to consider the woman at the well. Middle of the day, she goes to get water. Random occurrence, random meeting, absolutely not. The woman with the issue of blood, right inside the story of Jairus' daughter. The two stories overlapping, same time frame. God puts Jesus in that place, brings those together so he can be glorified. There's a couple of reasons why God performed miracles. One was to solidify and to prove who he was, and I believe the other was to make the religious world begin to see the power and the character and the nature of who Jesus truly was. The man born blind, the man at the pool of Siloam, been crippled all those years, and he stands up and walks away after an interaction with Jesus. The 10 lepers, none of us would say those are random events. None of us would say those things just happened. What we would say is that God superintended those events. Furthermore, without his incarnation, we cannot have the trial. We spent a little time last night watching one of the most painful movies ever, um, The Passion of the Christ. And uh, just the hatred that flowed towards our Savior. Just the sheer hatred they had towards him. Without that trial, there could have been no cross. Without that cross, there would be no death. Without his death, there could be no resurrection. Without his resurrection, there would be no hope. God superintended every event leading up to this point. His authority will never decrease. His power will never diminish. And I guarantee you his glory will never be usurped by somebody trying to take it away from him. Yes, God put his son on the cross. Mind-boggling and painful, but very true. Let's not forget either before we go any further that the cross and the resurrection are the dividing point in all of mankind's history. 
Think about it. At the cross, at the resurrection, what happened? Before Christ, right? What's afterwards? We say AD, I always thought that meant after death, but it doesn't, it means Anno Domine, which is the year of our Lord. Of course, modern man doesn't like those terminologies because they don't want to accept the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and he was resurrected from the grave and went to heaven and is going to be our eventual judge. They don't like that idea, so they've changed it. Now it's called the Christian era or the before Christian era or they have some other notes for it because they don't want to accept the fact that Christ died for us on the cross and was resurrected on this morning and the world can't stand it because they don't understand it. You will never fully grasp all that happened on the cross until Christ becomes your Lord and Savior. I'm a firm believer the Holy Spirit has to teach you how important the death, burial, and resurrection is. You may intellectually assume it, you may get it in your head, but getting it that 18 inches into your heart and understanding how it all plays together is the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And those of you that have been believers for longer than I've been alive, which is quite a while, you know that the more you grow in Christ and the more you begin to explore the Scripture, the more God begins to share what the Scripture truly means. And he shows you things that you've never seen before. Had that happened to me yesterday? I'll tell you about it here in a minute. Because it was just kind of one of those moments. There were some mile markers to the resurrection. How many of you travel without GPS? How many have ever done that? How many of you older folks remember folding a road map? About yay big, right? Got 37 folds and pleats in it, and you, you get it from the roadside rest, gas stations used to have them, and you take it back to the car, and you realized in that moment that it would never look like that again. <laughs> you're looking at that map, and you're, in a way, you're glad you have it, but you know that when you're done, it's going to be about that thick and about that wide, and you're never going to get it in your glove compartment because there's three other ones in there. Because once you unfolded that map, it never went back. But now with GPS, take our phone out. I just happen to have mine. Take my phone and tell it where you want to go and hook it up to your car. And Tony's car, this Australian guy's voice comes out as her Surrey. And every time he says something, I go, okay, mate. But one of the things I like to do as I'm traveling is I like to look out the window. I like to see what I'm passing. You ever see those little road signs on the side, the little, little number signs? Kind of tell you the road you're on, how many miles you've went. Some states get right down into a decimal point, tell you how far you went. You never can remember whether you started at zero or whether you started at the higher number and it's getting lower or higher. But at least if you break down, you know where you're at. God put those kind of mile markers in our world that pointed to the coming of Christ and in the coming of Christ to the coming of the resurrection. Isaiah 53 from last night gave many markers that we should be seeing. The only problem is those that have seen them should have seen them the best, ignored them. You ever ignore your GPS? Then I have to hear from the navigator which is sitting in the front row. And she says, you just missed our exit. I said, well, the screen didn't change in time. 
She goes, but it said go here, but I want to go there because I didn't think that's where we needed to go. The Jewish leaders of the day missed the signs and sped off in their own world. And now to the tomb. The borrowed tomb that we're going to read about in the book of John, go there with me, chapter 20. The borrowed tomb. The borrowed tomb was no small thing for Joseph of Arimathea to give away. It was a huge deal. I did some research on this tomb just because I think it's important in, in the context of time. We know that in Isaiah 53, 9, Joseph of Arimathea was prophesied of and that he would be the rich man that would bury Jesus. This tomb that he gave him was not an inexpensive thing. It was not a random act of kindness. It was most likely a family tomb. I want you to picture this, if you will. This is a tomb that would have been hollowed into solid rock. Now, I've, I've never done much work with rock. I've cut some concrete. I've broke some up. Um, the amount of time it would have took to cut a tomb of this size would have been quite extensive, quite expensive. This wasn't just a small hole in the wall. This was most likely intended to be the family tomb because there was room enough, as we will see, for a body to lay and for a couple of angels to sit on it. So it had to be big enough to at least stand up somewhat in it, had to be deep enough for the full body to be stretched out, and had to be wide enough for these things to be called osuri boxes which what would happen was when somebody passed away, the body was placed on the stone, the, the tomb was sealed. A year later, they would go back after the body decomposed. They'd wash the body, the bones in wine, and they would put them in a box, and the box would be stored in the tomb, ready for the next person that was to occupy it. On the outside of the tomb, there would probably be an inscription that had some idea of the name and some details as much as the family wanted to share and could afford. Okay, so this was not just a simple little hole in the wall where they slid the body in and then pulled him back out. This was a major investment by Joseph of Arimathea. And to give that to the man on the cross would have been an extremely large gift of grace and of love. So the tomb is not just a hole in the wall. It's something special. Let's read John 20, 12 together. And I'll start at 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had laid. And, when, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And they said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. You see, these women sought after the body of Christ. They desired to have their savior. Several years ago, I was struck as I read through the gospels about the fact that the empty tomb really isn't empty. As you look through the hole, the doorway, what do you see? You would see from verses six and eight of that same chapter, you would see the linens he was wrapped in laying on a table 
not only just laying on a table, but still in the form as if the body was there. And the face cloth was rolled up and set off to the side. The picture there in the, in the original language is as if the body was still in it. So Jesus moved from the wrappings without taking the wrappings off. He moved himself from there, set his face cloth over to the side. And that is what they saw. So empty it would not have been. Now, why do you think we don't have the Shroud of Turin and all those things? Because man has a tendency to worship things rather than the one who created them. Why do you think we don't know where the Garden of Eden is? Can't you just see it? If somebody figured out where the Garden, in, uh, Garden of Eden was, it would be like Jurassic Park all over again. Somebody would want to build an amusement park there and there'd be lunch boxes and everything else. Man, Come see the Garden of Eden. They would have worshipped the site. How about the body of Moses? Why did God take Moses up into the mountain and bury him? Because he knew that they would dig the body up and they'd find the bodies and they would worship the body. So God systematically and very definitely had all of those things go away so man couldn't find them. Because he doesn't want those things worshipped. He wants your worship and your adoration, not of the things that he has created. Because he alone is worthy. As I got to that, the point of this fullness of the empty tomb, I realized there were some things going on in there that I had never noticed before. There is a fabulous passage in the book of Exodus that talks about the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you will, Exodus 25, I'm going to read it for you. It's not a long passage, but it gives you some idea of where we're going. Exodus 25, 17 through 22. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece and the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. Their faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. What do we see in the book of John? We see two angels sitting on this slab, one on each end, and very much in a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of it, but the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, it's not a great big thing. Two angels, wings outspread. There in the middle between the angels was the mercy seat. That's where the Shekinah glory came down and sat. That's where God came down and communicated from. Go to the tomb. What do we see? See the two angels still sitting on the end of the stone and what's in the middle isn't that where christ laid isn't he our mercy seat isn't he the ultimate giver of mercy and grace and of love isn't he the example that we're all supposed to follow isn't he the one that's going to gave his life for us and is now resurrected so that we may have eternal life that is a picture of the mercy seat am i willing to write that down and stand on a street corner and preach it i don't know 
I don't know if I can stand there all day long and tell you absolutely that's what it's all about, but I can tell you this, that it's a better picture of the mercy seat than I've got. It's an idea that God has put something there for us. If it's in his word, it's important. There is nothing frivolous in God's word. Everything in God's word is absolutely critical. This morning, as we look at that empty tomb and we consider that cross, let's not forget that that's not where it ends. The empty tomb is empty by design. That's the way God set things in motion. But from the empty tomb, Christ emerges, the absolute victor over hell, death, and the grave. How many of you need a victory in your life? How many of you need to know you're serving a victor? I do. I often get defeated in this world. I feel like I'm beat up. And yet I fall back on the fact that Christ died for me. And this morning we celebrate that. The Apostle Paul gave us some things to hang your hat on. These are hang your hat, these are my hang your hat on scriptures. Romans 8:38, 8:37 through 39. The Apostle Paul wrote, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, and most of you can repeat this with me, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to do what? Separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loved us so much that he killed his son for our behalf. And in that, he put him in the tomb, and from the tomb, he resurrected him. I quoted it Friday night, and it would be wrong not to do so again this morning. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. There's a picture there I just can't help but tell you about. When a king or an army would go out and they would have a battle and they would win, they would take the leaders, the generals, the king, whoever they had conquered, the high-ranking important people, and they would take them and they would lead them in a parade through town. They would walk them and lead them right down Main Street, drag them along just as victors, just they had been vanquished. They would come, they would be bound. They would be walking along, maybe being drugged along by a chain. They would be drugged through town and made a spectacle of. And everybody would stand on the street and they would see the great king, the great conqueror has conquered these people. These people are now ours, we own them. And that's the picture of Christ when he come out of the grave. He conquered, he took death and hell in the grave and he walked it right past everybody. And there he stands and in that moment, everybody knows that he has complete victory over hell, death, and the grave. And the only way you can have it is if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's one of my favorite verses. And then... The Apostle Paul reminds us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. The empty tomb brought something new.
have brought new life in Christ. How many of you are new? How many of you have had that regeneration in your heart? How many of us have had that experience? I'd been there. November 23rd, 1987. For some reason, God chose to save me. Do I know why? I have no idea. Why God would choose any of us is far beyond me. Why would he take me not over somebody that's rich and famous and good looking? Well, okay, maybe I got the good looking part. Um, so I don't, I don't know why he would save me. I don't know why he would save you. I don't know why he loves you. I don't know why he loves you or you. But God loved us enough to send his son and to prove his authority over hell, death, and the grave. The grave was empty. Christ is resurrected. And we know that we can enjoy that same resurrection power because someday our bodies will fail or he will come for us. And we will stand before God and our advocate, Jesus Christ, will say, this is my child. That's what the empty tomb is all about. Let's pray. Father God, grateful. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for all that we have. Thank you for the love you've given us. Thank you so much for the empty tomb. There are only so many words that we can use to express our love for you. And mine would be amazing how you would love us enough to do these things for us. And Lord, we ask these things not because we are worthy, but because you are. We do these things in Christ's name.